Shelley Long and Bette Midler, or is that Bette Midler and Shelley Long chase a coyote from New York to New Mexico? Meanwhile, a fender bender causes Richard Dreyfus and Danny DeVito to plot revenge against each other. All that plus Ernest P. Whirl. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Another great 80s band, the Fine Young Cannibals. Uh, a couple of n- number one songs in their repertoire. That, there's a really interesting story about that song and its usage in our second movie, but we've got three movies to discuss on this week's episode. And sitting across from me, let me introduce my partner, Chad Smart. Chad, are you ready to venture into 1987? I, I am. I am excited to get through this episode because I know what's coming ahead in 87, but this one is full of surprises. That's one way of putting it, yes. As we mentioned in the last episode, uh, 1986 was a good year for Touchstone. They branched out. They made R-rated films. They started having more talent in front and behind the camera. And that's very evident in 1987 as well. You start to see some big names, but also you start to see what I like to call the Touchstone repertory. You're seeing several actors come back and make a second movie, a third movie with them. But before we get to that, I just want to mention just a little bit of listener feedback. We finally have gone live on all the different podcasting platforms, and we've had some very nice reactions. Uh, I got a text message from my friend Doug Stolhand. He's the co-host of the ever-popular hockey podcast, The Puck Podcast. And I just wanted to mention what he said. He just basically said, um, one request, could you include how you watched the movie? He said, you mentioned the DVD extras for Splash, but if you or Chad watched the movie online, could you let us know where it's streaming in case the audience wants to watch it? Unfortunately, when it comes to streaming the Disney movies, I mean, Disney Plus just launched. If the movie's not on Disney Plus, it's not streaming anywhere else for free. I mean, you can rent them, but... I was going to say, should I include how I watched it while I was also on my phone and computer and cleaning and doing other things, or if no, I was focused. Don't mention that. Don't mention. Just say you watch the. You, you, all you when, you when you watch a Touchstone movie, you really just zone in on it, right? I, oh I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just saying for the future. If I, yes. when we get into the movies that I'm more familiar with mm-hmm. and have seen multiple times. Yeah, but for the to the answer for Doug's question on this one, all three films that we discussed in this episode were just simply rentals from the public library and i and free rentals i should say i mean we're very fortunate that here in los angeles the between the la public library and the la county library there's a vast well library of dvd <laughs> titles and you can get them pretty easily but also um there was somebody who follows us on twitter now and i want to make sure i get her name rachel i want to say isakovitz i hope that i pronounced that correctly if you're listening rachel but she sent the tweet after the first episode dropped and she said so far, so good. I like how you guys incorporated archival audio clips for your movies in order to provide context and inform the listeners about the history of the two movies. It's clear you guys did your research, and I appreciate that. So that was very nice. Thank you very much, Rachel. Rachel She's... At least one of us does research for this show. <laughs> I'll let you choose which one that is. Oh, well, you know, I, 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 I want to just I try so hard. You know, I want this to be so good. But uh, let's just get into it. We've got three movies to discuss on this week's episode. And so, Chad, what are we discussing first? The first one is a classic 
female rom-com comedy adventure whatever it is outrageous fortune from touchstone pictures shelly long is outrageously in love they haven't seen you for nine hours bet midler is outrageously in love i know you need but what's even more outrageous they're in love with this same man. Now they'll do anything to catch him. What we need right now is to find a man. Not gonna be that great. I'm a little bond. Outrageous Fortune, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspapers. Yes, for the second straight year, Touchstone has released a comedy in the month of January, which is sort of like cinematic dumping ground. This movie was released on January 30th of 1987. And uh, as we mentioned in the open, it's Bette Midler, it's Shelley Long, it's Shelley Long, it's Bette Midler. We'll explain that joke as we get into the discussion of the film. But uh, this was Bette Midler's third consecutive Touchstone film. She would, want, she would actually go make, make seven in a row. Um, but then she came off a huge 1986 with Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Ruthless People, which we discussed before. Shelley Long had, uh, she's in the final year of Cheers at this point, and she started to establish a movie career. You know, she'd done Cavemen, Night Shift, Irreconcilable Differences, and I totally forgot the Money Pit was from the year before, and that had been a huge hit. And so as we were discussing uh, big talent in front of the camera and also behind the camera, I, did, I never realized Outrageous Fortune was directed by Arthur Hiller, who is a name I remember hearing about for many years, it seems like. Um, in, the, in the 60s and 50s and 60s, he was more of a TV director, but he made a really good transition into films in the 1970s. And he did, you know, Out of Towners. I know he did, I know him from Love Story, um, The Hospital, Silver Streak with um, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder, yes. Just totally spaced on that. Uh, the year before, I know, excuse me, I think it was two years before Outrageous Fortune, he'd done Teachers, which was a sleeper hit. It wound up doing pretty well. I, I think you mentioned in our show that it was, it was a hit because of the theme song, right? 38 special, you know, you throw them on the soundtrack, you've got a bona fide hit. <laughs> and so this was one of those movies, I, I never saw it. I remember it coming out when I was a kid, you know, it was these two comedi- very popular comedians. And I don't know, I was expecting a lot from it. I thought it was going to be kind of a fun, I mean, it's R-rated, and as we'll get into, it's just, it's very foul, and I think that's the main reason for the R-rating. But um, there's, there's good chemistry between the two leads, even though, as we will discover, they, you know, they didn't quite get along as much. But um, I just thought it was funny that, that it's, you know, it's set in New York City, and so it's, it's that standard kind of odd couple plot, right, where Shelley Long is clearly like the Felix, and Bette Midler is the Oscar character, and Bette Midler has this just, I, I thought it was kind of an awful New York accent, where she's New Yorker and all that stuff, and the accent sort of comes and goes between, you know, from scene to scene. We mentioned on the last episode, or I think a couple episodes when we were talking about her with Down and Out, uh, she's from Hawaii. So I don't know if it's if it was. I mean, who knows? If, I don't know if her parents were from New York or something. It's, did it seem natural? I, I don't remember the accent that much. I, I didn't re- notice. Uh, it didn't register with me. I should say. Mm-hmm. But then again, I'm also a guy who doesn't didn't think Kevin Costner's English accent in Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves was that bad. So. I don't have an ear for accents. I just think it's just funny because when you first see her, it's, she's just so brash yeah. and whatnot. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, when she has to start working together with Shelley Long, it's maybe, maybe I guess you don't hear the accent as much when she gets, when she's not loud and screaming. Um, I think Shelley Long, unfortunately, ends up playing kind of a one note character, right? I don't, I don't know if that's followed her around for all of her entire career. She seems to have that same kind of, that, that prude 
that she worked the Diane character from Cheers. I mean, I've never, unfortunately, I've never seen Night Shift or, or Reconcilable Differences, but I know in Money Pit, she kind of plays that sort of blue blood um, yuppie from the East Coast, right? Yeah, and in Caveman, she is from the left side of the tar pit instead of the right side where the more bourgeois cavemen live. So, yeah, that's chilly long. <laughs> She's an upper crust cave person. Is that yeah. what it is? Something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the film itself, I, I mean, what did you think? I thought it was just, it was a kind of a broad, it was very like the stereotypes and kind of, a, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I was not impressed with it. And I had not seen this movie prior to the recording or, or the watching for this podcast. Uh, you know, I knew it existed. I remember the VHS cover in the video store. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I wasn't a huge Shelley Long or Bette Midler fan, so I wasn't rushing out to get this. And I think maybe if I would have seen it as a kid, it may have registered more with me. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, uh, I found it very lackluster. I just didn't, I didn't find it very funny, which is something that going through and watching a lot of older 80s quote-unquote comedies i'm finding they're not really that funny yeah it's more this is more of an action uh chase movie than a comedy yeah and but even the action scenes and the mystery is just yeah. it's not it's kind of a little too far-fetched you and know it, we mentioned it with down at beverly hills like i thought that was going to be a lot funnier too but at least that i, I could follow the plot I, I enjoyed the film enough whereas this one was more kind of like all right, it's a little silly, but I could see people liking it back then, right? But you mentioned you, you didn't see it as a kid, but then again, I probably wouldn't have because it's R-rated, right? Yeah. yeah. And I also think, as we discussed off-air before, after both of us had watched the movie, that I found the um, suspension of disbelief to be too hard to get into because this movie is very much, you know, you go to point A to point B, and everything just happens conveniently to get you to the next set piece. Yeah. It's not that well. And I just, I didn't find the mystery to be that appealing. And even the purpose of Shelley Long and Bette Midler coming together over Peter Coyote, hence my wordplay at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. it, it seemed kind of forced and unnatural. Yeah, I think it was one of the biggest problems I had with the movie is that they're so. I mean, I guess they set up how hard it is to date in New York. There's a really off, there's a really bizarre joke where they're talking. Is it's the guy at the cigar shop, and then he's like he's gay instead, and they're like, oh god, he's gay. Of course, it's an '80s movie. Yeah, there's a gay character. Yeah, there's always a lot of that. Um, but then, like, at, there's a certain point in the movie where the two women they discover that he's not who he who he is, and so they're they'd much rather find out which one of them he's interested in. Like, just completely glossing over the fact that he's a criminal. He's not here. I'm going to find him. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Where? Well, he could be hiding, he could be hurt, I don't know. But I know that he needs me. Now, if you'll excuse me. Well, well, where are you going to look? His apartment? You think he's going to be hanging out at his apartment? Someone wants to kill him? Oh, well, I'm not going to his apartment. Then where are you going? Isn't that my business? Okay, look, hold it. Okay? All right. If you have an idea, you might as well tell me. And we'll both go. We'll go find him and we'll help him out of this. And then we'll make him choose. Choose? Yeah. Between us? Yeah. I doubt that he'll know your name. Then we're on. And then as far as, like, you mentioned the mystery, that was one of the things that kind of, I don't know, it was was really odd that 
for being a mystery, it was very easy to solve. Like, you know, the, I mean, I know that the women are not supposed to be, they play them, they, they make Bette Midler seem kind of, kind of dumb and they make Shelley Long, she's an actress. So you want to think that she's maybe vapid and self-centered, but like all the clues in the film, you know, Peter Coyote keeps re- repeatedly mentioning, I'm from New Mexico. Oh, I got, I smoked tobacco. It's from New Mexico. It's from New Mexico. And then all of a sudden when he go, when he disappears, they're like, where could he be? <gasps> you know, I think he's in New Mexico. You know, and, and and what ends up happening is the, the 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 two women end up being smarter than the cops, and and no one wants to help them because they he fakes his death, but no one wants to believe them, and then it just becomes this easy thing where they're like, oh well, I'll just go to the cab company, and I get like, what the all of a sudden they're Sherlock Holmes, and 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 no one else has thought of this, and then it just kind of that you talk about that suspension of disbelief. That's what I kept thinking when I was watching it. My suspension of disbelief goes back even before that because we see how Peter Coyote character meets Shelley Long and how they start dating. But then all of a sudden in this montage, he's all of a sudden now with Bette Midler as well. Like it mm-hmm. cuts in between the two, you know, the three of them in a weird sense, you know, coital positions, but, yeah. but you don't see, it doesn't develop the romance. So you don't know why he's with them That's and you true. don't you know why, you know, why would he be with both at the same time or, and, and the, the resolution for why later on in the movie is so, far out there that doesn't yeah. make sense and doesn't really play well i mean i did like you know we talk about the coital stuff that i did like the editing is very cleverly done because mm-hmm. you think he's going to visit chili long and yeah. it's actually bet midler and so that's how they set that up but like you said they don't really establish the why he's with bet midler they have this great sort of sort of meet cute with the Shelley long character yeah. and then they just kind of leave it alone um but what's really funny is i think like i said the the, the mystery yes they have to chase him to new mexico but yet um, just like in Ruthless People that we talk about how Bette Midler and Helen Slater in that movie, they kind of bonded like they're, they're, they're enemies in the sense that she's the kidnapper, but then they bond over clothing and, and makeup. And then the exact same thing happens in this movie where I think they go to, did they go to Bette Midler's house? I think. And also when they're in New Mexico and they're looking at the, the clothing on the rack and they're just like, Oh my God, like they completely forget about the mystery to, to, to try to see what they look like in front of a mirror, which is, I don't know. Is like, I mean, that would that be would that stand still would that stand up now or is it just kind of like oh it's 80s uh priorities or something right well you got to get a clothing montage in there somewhere in the 80s but yeah, yeah i you know we've said it. it this the the relationship between Bette Midler and Shelley Long doesn't necessarily work for me cuz it it seems a matter of convenience but more so a convenience for the story plot yeah. like this scene they're going to be working together the next scene they're going to be you know, opposite. It's in, and the whole storyline with their acting coach. It just this whole movie. I, I think every Touchstone film kind of comes down to my one critique. It needs another rewrite. Another rewrite. Yeah. Well, this is the first time screenwriter actually. Yeah. I believe it was. Le- it was her name is Leslie Dixon. And you know what? What's so funny was when we talk about the Touchstone movies, and we mentioned now. Okay, now we're starting to see some big name directors. I've noticed that we're. We're, what, 10 movies in, I think, now? And we're starting to see... Uh, they, they're taking chances on first-time writers. That's what, I mean, they, they'll, they'll put big directors in the movie, but they have no problem taking a chance on like first-time writers or people who don't have a lot of writing credits to their name. And to her credit, Leslie Dixon, you know, she would go on to do Overboard, Lover Boy with Patrick Dempsey, which is a movie I always liked, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. She did the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. So she worked consistently for a good three decades. But yeah, I was really surprised to find her other writing credits because watching this I'm like this is somebody who probably has one film to their name and then I saw that she did Overboard came out the same year yeah and I I mean I have friends and family that just love Overboard and quote it and Mm -hmm. I'm like 
Okay. That is good a surprisingly her. good movie. Yeah. yeah, I think I watched it when I worked at MGM. We had a screening of it, and it was just one of those ones where, like, oh, this sounds like fun. Let's go see it. That Overboard is the movie that I was hoping for when I watched Outrageous yeah. Fortune, I guess. Um, just to go back to the cast real quick, I, I think we mentioned it, but Peter Coyote, personally, I think he's, a, like, a great leading man, you know? He sort of plays that sort of, quote-unquote, lady killer, and he's, you know, he's got that booming voice. I could see why, you know, 80s Peter Coyote, I mean, unfortunately, you think of him from, like, E.T., where he plays yeah. the, the evil scientist or whatever, but I could see two women fawning over him very easily and then i have this in my notes but damn you damn you for making robert prosky a bad guy because he's just one of those great character actors always plays like the sweet grandpa or uncle and then when you see him in this movie and he's, he's this russian drama teacher and you're like okay and then you find out that oh he's he's a secret agent or something and you're like well number one i don't want i don't want him to believe he's a bad guy but then number two i have a hard time seeing him in that role like he's such a such a nice sweet old man i guess one of the things i i like about doing this series is when you see these older movies and you see actors who would become famous later or become known for roles later we had it with tough guys where the hotel clerk was played by ernie sabella sabella Sabella. dana carvey also as well right Yeah. yeah in this movie there's a scene at an airport uh where they're trying to get onto the Playing, you know, trying to get to New Mexico and they don't have the money. The airline attendant is played by Florence Stanley, who I know from My Two Dads. She was the judge that gave Greg Evigan and um, Paul Reiser young Nicole. And then the scene that, going back to the accents and New York, when Shelley Long tries to put on a tough Brooklyn accent and they, they bust two drug dealers, one of them is played by... Robert Pastorelli, yeah. who was Eldon the house painter in Murphy Brown. I mean, I'm sure he'd done other stuff, but I always kind of remember him from that. Yeah, I think that's that's the defining role for him. So yeah. seeing these people, you know, these actors in smaller roles, it's just... Yeah, yeah it's but good. the best part of the cast, and I'll save it best for last, my favorite part of the whole movie is George Carlin. Like, I mean, I'd heard that... He had, hadn't been a movie in over a decade. I think Car Wash was his last movie before then. And I remember we talked about when this movie came out back in the day. I still knew that George Carlin was in it. Like he seemed to, he, he seemed to make it in the commercial or the marketing materials or whatnot. And I mean, it's, I really thought he, he kind of brings the movie back around. Like you have this silly kind of mystery where you're like, okay, and they go to New Mexico. And then as soon as they get there, then I think that's where the comedy chops come from from that point on. Welcome. Hey. You're looking for a guide, right? A native Indian to show you the hidden wonders of this great Chickatakawa nation? Well, ladies, you have found him. Special price, today only, $20. I don't want to be the first to break this to you. You are not an Indian. That's a technicality. I've been a blood brother to the Chickatakawa since 1968. I got a tan. What do you want for $20? So all in all, like if I had to sum up this movie, the best way I could say it is just, it's the kind of movie that my mother would have liked. You know, I mean, obviously it's a little bit, you know, a lot of foul language and whatnot, but it just, she always liked Bette Midler and I, and I know she loved George Carlin. She was always watching his HBO specials, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely a product of its time. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who saw it back in the day, who love it now, but I wonder if people saw it now for the first time, like the, like we did, would it still be as enjoyable? I, I don't know how to answer that because I can't okay. put myself in that time frame, but this is probably, probably the first real disappointment 
from the Touchstone Library? Because, I mean, both of us can agree that Baby was not the greatest. Yeah. But I think we went into that movie knowing Baby was not going to be Shakespeare. Sure, sure. With the success of Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Ruthless People, you know, Bette Miller, kind of, you're kind of expecting a good, kind of chilly long coming off of Cheers at this time. Mm-hmm. I kind of expected a little bit more than what I got. Yeah, I mean, I I say that I, I wanted a little bit more from Down and Out Beverly Hills, but I still enjoyed the film. You're right. This is one that I, I when it was over, I was kind of like, oh, that, well, that's it. I guess, you know, there's we've got 200 of these movies we've got to watch. That's one. And, and to be honest with you, I'm really surprised that it hasn't been remade. You know, like they haven't tried to, to I mean, I don't know if it's a popular enough IP for, for Disney to want to, to reuse, but yeah. Now, I have a question for you real quick, Shoot. because in the research, it was pointed out that this was the first female buddy film. Do you agree with that, or I? I feel like there, there was, there's got to be something before. This is 1987, you know. Yeah, I have How to Marry a, Bil- a Millionaire yeah. and Nine to Five, which I guess would be a comedy trio. Yeah, of women, but How to Marry a Millionaire is a trio as well. I'm it, thinking like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is, is yeah. Jane Russell and Marilyn. That's a, sort of a female buddy comedy. Yeah. You know, or does something it mean, like it hot? So does it mean, <laughs> or does it mean something like a female buddy comedy doesn't have singing? Maybe that's what it is. Uh, like I said, something we—if you're new to the show—one of the things I like to point out is what I call the touchstone touch, and how did this differentiate itself from Disney? Like, why did they put it under this banner? And this—this this is a perfect touchstone movie. This is a lot of sexual situations. There are jokes about a certain part of Peter Coyote's anatomy, and there's there's a scene in toward the end where it's they're the in, appendix scar, right? Yes, that's it's yeah, a little lower. And there's this, there's an awkward scene where they're in a whorehouse in New Mexico, which is just, I don't, why, why is it in there? It's just like I sometimes I feel like, oh well, we can. We're gonna, if we're gonna make this R rated, let's just go ahead and go all the way and make it R rated. Um, personally, if I put this on a scale of one to ten, I'd go right down the middle with a five, mainly because of George Carlin. I mean, he's just a comedic gem, but I thought the script was a little too obvious, and it works on these really generic stereotypes. But the stars do have good comedic timing, and they do fit the time period well. I would give this a four. I just, it's a movie that's there. Like, I'm not going to rush out and see this again. I'm probably not going to recommend it to anybody, but I've seen worse films. So, but yeah, it's, it's middle of the pack, just below. Okay. And then some interesting trivia about the film. I think it's been written about several times, but Bette Midler was somewhere between two and three months pregnant when they were filming. So the whole time she's wearing like this big oversized orange sweater, I think, from, I don't know if she changes at all. She seems to always have that on. Um, The final location, the, which is the four fingers, which is supposed to be New Mexico. That's fake. It's all just a matte painting. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that movies are lies? So disappointing. Uh, yeah, and well, uh, I'm canceling my vacation plans. <laughs> and so, um, one of the things when we started the podcast, I mentioned is that I don't, I don't want to simply just quote Wikipedia or the AFI's website, which has a lot of great information. I like to pull it and then let's go ahead and make a discussion out of it. But, the, but this next trivia factor, which is what I, you see it everywhere. I got it verbatim because I really want to make sure I get it down specifically. And here it is. This, this, I believe this is from directly from the AFI's website. It mentions how the two stars um, battled over the top billing. And boy, did yeah, they were kind of neck and neck with each other. Uh, the November 23rd, 1986, Los Angeles Times noted that Shelley Long was the first one to sign, and her contract guaranteed top billing. 
However, Shelley Long was eager to work with Bette Midler and had to agree to share top billing before Bette Midler would sign. The solution their agents worked out was that Midler received top billing on prints of the movie released east of the Mississippi River, while Long received top billing on prints released west of the Mississippi. During production, Midler and Long's names were alternated on any press releases sent out. When Midler's name first, when Midler's name appeared first in a release, the next press document sent out had to mention Long first. Once the film was in theaters, distributor Buena Vista Pictures sent out two sets of newspaper advertisements. One set had Midler's name on the left and Long's name on the right. The other set reversed the order. Newspapers were instructed to alternate the ads on a daily basis. Two sets of movie trailers, posters, and lobby cards were also required to accommodate the top billing issue. The agreement extended through the original Laserdisc and VHS release of the title, with discs shipped to retailers in the West featuring Shelley Long and retailers in the East receiving discs featuring Bette Midler. Interesting to note the final part of that. Shelley Long is the one who's top billed on the, on the film print itself. I'm just going to jump in here, and I, Mike, you and I are not actors. We, mm-hmm. we don't get uh, you know top billing anywhere, but this just makes no sense to me mm-hmm. in any regard. I've never looked at a movie poster and been like, "Oh, this actor doesn't get top billing. I'm not going to go see it." Or you know, it, I can understand it being reflective of the role, and someone who is below the title might have a smaller role. But this just seems like. Actor ego run amok. I think about the poor like marketing intern that's got to make sure that's correct. And then the guy from the newspaper that also has to make sure it's correct. And, you know, I'm sure people probably lose their jobs over something like this. You and I both worked in the industry and we started low. And you you just want to make sure you impress the higher ups. But, man, that seems really annoying. Who's checking the daily newspaper in Montana to see if they're running the correct, you know, alternate schedule? I can, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, the last note I do have on that, I, I want to make sure I get this because uh, there's a funny clip of Bette Midler was on the Oprah Winfrey show after the movie came out. And uh, somebody asked her a pointed question and she had a very surprising answer. Um, you and Shelley Long were great together in Outrageous Fortune. I was wondering if you guys were going to work together again. I don't think so. No? No, I don't think so. Did you enjoy working with her? I, I, it was pretty rough. It was rough. <laughs> it was pretty rough. But she did a good job, I think. As it turned out, it was a very, very successful picture for both of us. And, I, and actually, you know, I have thought about, about working with her again. If the right script came along, I wouldn't mind. And then I have one more. I, I, I saw this listed on the, I think it was on the Wikipedia page, so, but I wanted to, as I mentioned, I wanted to do a little more research to dig into it. There, it mentions that uh, Suzanne Summers claims that Michael Eisner offered her a three-picture deal with Disney and Outrageous Fortune was supposed to be the first of those titles. Her manager advised her to turn it down. And what it was is it was an interview she did with Larry King. And he and she, he asked her like if she had any regrets, and she goes, "Well, the one regret I had was turning down this three picture deal." And then and he he says that, or she mentions that outrageous fortune was supposed to be the first one, and Larry King was like, "Oh, you'd have been great in that." And she goes, "Oh, you know, Bette Midler got all my movies because she had that deal with Touchstone." But I was wondering, is it true or not? Because in the interview, she specifically says that the offer occurred when she was at the height of Three's Company. But she left that show in 1981, and Michael Eisner didn't go to Disney until 1984. So I'm wondering, unless she unless she just remembered the time wrong, or whether it was just something that an actor would say, because she didn't really work again until she's the sheriff, in, which was 1987. So I don't know if I'd buy it. 
which is much more enjoyable than Outrageous Fortune, in my opinion. <laughs> um, because of Chad and I have another podcast called Wonder Why, where we, we examine one-hit wonders and we look at the charts. I always, I'm kind of curious to see if these movies have theme songs or other hits that came out of them. The song that plays over the opening credits of Outrageous Fortune is a song called Something Special is Going to Happen Tonight by Patti LaBelle, which also appeared in a movie in 1986 called Sweet Liberty. Um, it didn't crack the Billboard Hot 100 charts, but it peaked at number 50 on the R&B chart and number 10 on the dance chart. Um, as far as the box office... We said it was released on January 30th of 1987, and it wind up opening in second place. It made a respectable $6.4 million. It finished behind Platoon, the eventual box office or the eventual Oscar winner of that year. The only other movies that opened that weekend were Alan Quartermain and The Lost City of Gold, which I believe is the um, Richard Chamberlain, Chamberlain, Sharon Sharon Stone, Stone, right? That finished seventh, and then in tenth place uh, opening that same weekend was Radio Days, the Woody Allen film. Um, Outrageous Fortune ends up being like a a minor hit. It it stays at at number two for three consecutive weeks behind Platoon, and then it barely, in the third week, it barely holds off uh, Mannequin, which is a movie that I, I'm sorry, I love that movie. And so for the next few weeks, um, Outrageous Fortune and Mannequin kind of trade off second and third place. And then eventually Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and Lethal Weapon show up. And then that kind of pushes Outrageous Fortune a little bit down. Um, it has a 10-week run in the theaters. And every weekend it finishes in the top 10. It winds up with $52.8 million on a budget of only $25 million. So for the second consecutive January, Touchstone has a good hit on their hands. And finally... I always like to look if there was any awards consideration. Um, Bette Midler was nominated for for Golden Globe for as, as Best Actress, Musical or Comedy for the second straight year. She had been nominated the year before for Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Both January movies, which seemed so bizarre. By the time that the awards come out, the movies had been in theaters for over a year. Um, she wins the, the American Comedy Award as Funniest Actress in a Motion Picture for the second straight year. She had won it the year before for Ruthless People. So where you want to go now? For its second release of 1987, Touchstone wanted to take a look at salesmen, basically men who could use a heart. This film is called Tin Men. A guy bangs into my car, thinks I did him in, tries to get even with me by stealing my wife. You two fall in love. This was that guy? Got that guy again? It's his wife. Pull for me? I had no choice. What happened? And you win. I win. You lost? Yeah, I lost. I'm a free man! Touchstone Pictures presents Richard Dreyfus. They live with you, it's like pressing the point. They bring all these things with them, you know, they, you go into the bathroom, you see things you never saw before. Danny DeVito. Listen, uh, I'm praying here. Would you go around? I went to get some of the salad. It's out of water. Go around. Barbara Hershey. Everything I've ever done in my whole life has been safe and practical. And what's it gotten me? What's it gotten me? Tin men. Well, here's to who knows what. Amen. Just like our first film, you've got some great talent behind the camera. This movie was directed by Barry Levinson. I, I didn't realize this in doing research, but he had actually won two Emmy Awards in the 70s as a writer on The Carol Burnett Show. And he would go on to work with Mel Brooks. He co-wrote Silent Movie, also High Anxiety. Um, as we, we mentioned, I don't know if we've mentioned it or not, but he did a movie called Diner, which kind of sprung his career off. I believe that came out in 1982. 
And then he did The Natural, which was a, a big hit. His previous film before, before Tin Men was Young Sherlock Holmes, which is a movie I remember when it came out, but I don't, I never saw it. I was just surprised to find out that Barry Levinson directed it because I yeah. remember, I believe, Christopher Columbus, or Chris, as he's known in the industry, Chris Columbus wrote the screenplay, and it is most famously known for having the first CGI character in the movie. Oh. I, I'm going to see if I can find that streaming somewhere. I would like, I'm actually really curious to see it. He was an Oscar nominee for Best Original Screenplay for uh, the Al Pacino movie and Justice for All. Um, as I mentioned before, the Touchstone repertory, we see this is Richard Dreyfuss, who's coming back to Touchstone a year after doing Down and Out Beverly Hills. The only movie he did in between was Stand By Me, which I'm pretty sure he just narrates it. Do you see him on screen, maybe? At the, at the very end. The of the very movie, end? Yeah. Okay. And then Danny DeVito comes back after Ruthless People. Um, I was really impressed with Barbara Hershey. She has had a long career in TV and film through the 60s and 70s. She had worked with Barry Levinson before on The Natural. She was a co-star in The Right Stuff. And in 1986, she had two notable films, which was Hannah and Her Sisters, the Woody Allen film, and Hoosiers, which I will defend that movie as one of the greatest sports movies ever made. As mentioned in the opening... I couldn't help but notice in the opening credits, it just says music by Fine Young Cannibals. Like, like, did they do the whole score? I knew they were a big band at the time, but what I didn't realize was their hits came a year later. So this film came out in 1987, and the song we played in the opening, in the opening of the show, Good Thing, which is a song I vividly remember, um, they play it live in the film, which I think is absolutely fascinating. For the song, the song was written in the '80s, and yet the Fine Young Cannibals are in the movie that's set in the '60s, and they're playing their '80s hit in the '60s, as if the song is just transitioned so well into that time period. I'm not overly familiar with Barry Levinson's work, and so I was I'm not I want to say surprised, but I think one of the things that I noticed about this was that the dialogue seemed very improvisational. You know, and it got to be a little bit repetitive, like the scene when they when they first have the car accident. They're just kind of going back and forth. You bolted out of nowhere. I bolted. You bolted. I bolted. And it's I don't know. You said you've seen Diner, right? Is that kind of a common theme with him? I've seen Diner. It's been a few years since I last watched it. Uh, it's a great film. I highly recommend it. It's uh, you know, it's got the Goot, Steve Gunberg, Kevin Bacon, Paul Reiser, and Mickey uh, Rourke, I believe. But it's it's just a good kind of I don't want to say coming of age film. But because the characters are more in their 20s, but it's mm-hmm. uh, to compare that with Ten Men, which one of the reviews that I read talks about how both films are like characters that haven't become adults yet. And I think that's very evident in the character that when Richard Dreyfus and Danny DeVito start their little back and forth bickering and and trying to one up each other in their job. It's obvious these guys are have. You know, stunted emotional growth, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think I'd, I'd heard supposedly there's a scene in Diner where there are aluminum siding salesmen at one of the other tables, and Barry Levinson gave them a scene, but then he didn't want to give them a whole movie because he's like, this movie's about the younger folks, and yet, how many, what was it, five years later, he does give them their own movie. I mean, I will say I, I, I did appreciate it because I'm always really interested in movies that, that take you somewhere where you can't go, and I, I, I do appreciate period pictures. And so this movie's set in 1963, and it kind of takes you behind the scenes of what it was like to be a salesman and their techniques. You see a lot of great scenes of them just sitting around in their office and kind of gabbing. Well, how do you know if you can get the upper hand? How do you know if you're dealing with a guy who's in an inferior position or a superior position to you? How do you know? Well, you just have to start talking. You nah, feel your nah, way. quick and... way. Take a book of matches out of your pocket to light your cigarette. Drop the matches on the floor. When the guy bends down to pick them up for you, you got a mark. You got this guy in your pocket. 
guy waits for you to pick him up, you got a long, hard, tough selling. So they want to win their confidence here. It's a good thing to try. Bagel, give me a $5 bill. You're going to start off with a $5 bill, which you've taken out before he's seen it, right? So you're sitting in the living room and you're talking, blah, 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 blah. And when he's not looking at you, drop it on the ground like that, and blah, 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 blah. And when he turns around, you go, oh, a $5 bill. Look at that. This, Mr. Blah Blah, would you like it back? And two things happen right away, okay? First thing he says, it's not mine. That's when you say, must have been because it certainly isn't mine, sir. Or he says thank you and takes it. Either case, he thinks you're an incredibly honest guy and you're in, see? <laughs> and yeah, and then you see them, you know, it's... <laughs> It's kind of a bygone era, like like not not to mention just going to the diners all the time, but they're like they're eating in in hotel restaurants, you know, and the way they kind of bar hop is as a as a group. And there's always interested in seeing movies from the '60s where the characters are just wearing suits constantly, and they they put so much emphasis on on Cadillacs and driving certain cars. I just question: Are there? I know there's still aluminum siding or siding for houses, but. It's not a door-to-door business anymore, is it? Like no one's like going knocking and. I mean, like, I you need to calling. Is it probably telemarketing, call. right? Maybe. Like, yeah. I don't know. I know. Before I moved to Los Angeles, I had a friend in Illinois who they he would work for a window company, mm-hmm. and they would just call people. I don't know if he looked in the phone book or whatever, and he would just call people to see if they wanted new windows. And I, I, just, I mean, who knows? I don't know if he ever talked about, you know, like Gil from The Simpsons. Oh, you know, I think I got, a, I got a deal. I got one going, and if I could, you know, make the deal. But yeah, the the plot is a little slow moving. It, it kind of shows the the mundane aspects of their life. Which I mean, if you're really caught up in it, like I said, I like the period aspect of it. But at the same time, I was like, okay, can you can you kind of get it going a little bit more? Um, you know, and then the same time, like you said, the, the stunted growth, the, I feel like these two guys are, they're, they're just want to be tough guys. You know, as we saw in the last episode, those are real tough guys. Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster. I believe them when they say they're going to beat you up. Whereas these two, they know, they, they feel like they're, they're, they're having these squabbles, but they're just waiting for their friends to kind of get in between them and, and kind of help talk tough and just, yeah, they're, it's all just talk. True. I, but I love. One of the aspects of the film that I really liked was each character has his own little group of co-workers, friends, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just the conversations. The one with Danny DeVito where they're in the diner eating and they're just going back and forth and talking about after the main, you know, the first interaction mm-hmm. or altercation. Uh, and they're talking about, oh, is that the guy that, you know, danced the, the merengue at the sales retreat or whatever? And, and then that became like the running joke. But it. It added a realism to the film, which, you know, I think because it's based, it's not based on Barry Levinson's life per se, but it's a little bit of his childhood growing up, and he captured it perfectly. Yeah, and that that ended up being one of my complaints about the film is that they had this great supporting cast, but you never really got to meet any of them. I mean, you're talking John Mahoney and Bruno Kirby and J.T. Walsh, who's so good. But then they, they each get these little, you know, maybe 90-second, two-minute scenes, and then it's off to another, like, long dialogue scene between Richard Dreyfus and Barbara Hershey or whatnot. Again, Barbara Hershey's great. I, I, I think she was great. I thought it was bizarre trying to see, I don't know, Richard Dreyfus. Maybe it's because of my – I grew up with him. I didn't remember him in the 70s. I wasn't around to watch those movies, but it's difficult seeing him as, like, a romantic lead. I think of him as a husband – not as like a lover type, you know. Like he's just this, this dashing guy. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You, you said you see him as a husband, not a lover type. We're gonna have to do some Freudian uh, analysis on your uh, relationship. <laughs> oh, um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously my go-to reference for Richard Dreyfus is Jaws. Sure. And then probably Stand by Me, and then Close Encounters would be. So yeah. I, yeah, he's not. I wouldn't see him as a Lothario out there, yeah. you know, hitting, trying to hit on women. But he's. Did you think it was effective? Because it was just, I don't know, it was weird. Like, I think there's, there's a scene where he's, he's talking to John Mahoney after he's connected with Barbara Hershey, and he's just trying to present himself as like this, just a, oh, you know, I, I can't stand having her here every day and all this and whatnot. I'm going to tell you something. She's getting on my nerves. Oh, Nora? Yeah. Yeah, who else is it going to be? Oh, Nora. Who else is there? whole idea of being with a girl on consecutive nights is new to me, you know? It's not like being with a girl for a night. When they live with you, it's like pressing the point. <laughs> they bring all these things with them, you know? They, you, you go into the bathroom, you see things you never saw before. So what's it to do? Well, they, they, they move all your stuff. It's not where it used to be. I'm just, uh, I'm not used to it. You mean all this time you never lived with a girl? Have we met? Huh? How long have we been partners, for crying out loud? No, I never lived with boy, a girl. Boy, oh boy, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed today? Yes, I did. I came home last night, and she was sleeping on my side of the bed. You know, as though as though infidelity is, is funny. It's just, like I said, it's, that's kind of the running theme of this movie. It's, it's immature behavior. It's adults behaving like children. And, again, I don't, I don't know. I just don't see him as the, this dashing guy that's going to sweep someone off their feet. But at the same time, and uh, I may regret saying this, Later in, in the career of Out of Touchstone, but Barbara Hershey in the, mar- in the movie is married to Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. So when the option is Richard Dreyfus, is it? Oh. You know, I want. I just wonder if she can do better than in both of them. Probably, and wow. uh, I can't think of what Barbara Hershey did later, which I could reference. But oh, I mean, I just know her from you know, uh, was it Last Temptation of Christ? Oh. And what she's going to do in Beaches, Beaches yeah. right? I saw her. There's our connection. I, I did go to a Q&A screening and, and, um, of Last Temptation of Christ, and, and she was there. And I, know, I mean, I was, I was sitting too far back to really kind of – nothing really memorable from her, from her anecdotes. I, I was – when I'm watching this movie, I was baffled by this home improvement commission where that's kind of coming to take their licenses away for unfair practices, very scheming. And I was like, is that really a thing? And I, sh- and I looked up. Sure enough, it was. And supposedly Barry Levinson had read transcripts of the hearings to get some ideas. I don't know. I just, I, I overall, I, I thought the movie was it was fine. It's it's another one of those ones that's just okay. I could see why Disney wanted to take a chance. It was a it was a, a, a decent director who who had a track record to him and was on his way up. But overall, I just like I said, I couldn't get past like you you mentioned the stunted growth of them, and also just Baltimore's a big city. Like how did they keep they kept running into each other? There was a lot of conveniences of the plot and then it goes on i thought it went on a, a little bit long like they the games they keep playing with the revenge go back and forth and you're like okay at some point i always compare it to um i love saved by the bell and some of the best who, say- who doesn't oh, of course and some of the best saved by the bell episodes are the ones where zach and slater both want kelly and then what ends up happening is they don't get her and then they become friends and that kind of forms the basis of that show you know yes zach would eventually get with her and so with this movie yeah they're kind of they're not fighting over the same woman they're just like they fell into her by default and then you know at the by the end of the movie she finally blows them both off and then they sort of become a little friendly i mean i don't know if you could do a sequel to this movie you know but it's just it it, i don't know it just 
if for a movie that just shows all this mundane aspects of life, it's got a real mundane ending where it's just kind of open-ended, like, all right, now, now we've both lost our license, now we're going to go on and just, who knows? I think it, I agree with you. I think this movie could have been chopped by about 15 minutes to give it a little bit better pacing. No. But it, it is that slice of, I don't want to say Americana, but it's, no. it's, it's not about being a story or a spectacle. It's a story. And yeah. it gives you this life. I, but I want to throw in real quick. Uh, we always talk about rep, uh, personal connections and I'm, this is a very tangential connection, okay. but John Mahoney, um, I don't know if he's, the late John Mahoney, unfortunately. Late, yes. Yeah. Uh, Illinois bred. Oh, bred. Um, I am from a small town in Illinois. The closest city, and I'm air quoting city, is a town called Quincy, Illinois. And there's a college there, Quincy University. John Mahoney graduated from Quincy University. And my co-host on Popology 101, uh, Travis Shates, is a professor at QU. And he said, I was talking with him before we started recording this. He said John Mahoney, even after graduating, was still a part of the community and would uh, be involved with like fundraisers and stuff for the show. So, okay. yeah, you know, uh, that's our little connection John Mahoney and... I think everyone will agree he was great on Frasier. But yeah. going back and seeing other films that he did before Frasier, and again, going back and discovering character actors. It's yeah, great. it's weird to see him without the, without the walker or without the, <laughs> little, the cane that he always has when he's limping with the yeah. dog chasing after him on Frasier. Um, for the Touchstone Touch, the movie is R-rated, which I was really surprised by, but it's only just language. I mean, it seemed like the sexual, the sexual situations in the film were, were all really tame. It's just... It's just, and it, it almost didn't need to be R-rated. I don't, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, Chad Smart, scale of one to ten, what would you give it? I'd probably give it a five. I mean, again, it's it, it takes me back to like country, only less depressing. Where mm-hmm. it's very well made, great acting. But am I going to watch it again? You yeah. know, is it, am I going to throw this on just to pass, the, you know, to pass the time, or even if I'm looking for something to watch? Probably yeah, not. I like that insight into the past, but at the same time, yeah, it is a little slow. It seems like a stage play, doesn't it? Speaking of which, yeah, well, I mean, well, I, I can, we'll get to that, but it just, it feels very stagey. It was like this, I don't know. You, you say it wasn't depressing. I thought it was a little depressing because it was like it was a weird, depressing look at these desperate people and the kind of things that they would do, not 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 just in their work, but also in their personal lives. That they would feel that much tension and stress that they feel like they had to take it out on somebody for something minor. Um, from a trivia standpoint, I, I mean, I think it's been mentioned in a couple different articles on the web, but the, there's a scene in the movie where they, they do this Life magazine scam where they're trying to pretend that, that they need to put li- aluminum sighting on this house for Life magazine. But that house was Barry Levinson's childhood home, and supposedly he hadn't been back there in decades, and so he was filming in the front yard of his house, which, I don't know, that's, that's, there's something kind of cool about that. Um, I did see a, a, a fact that said... Uh, some uncut negative dailies were stolen from a truck taking the film to a processing lab in New York City. And so Danny DeVito and Richard Dreyfuss had to reshoot three days' worth of work. That's, I, I, that's amazing. I mean, I, I, mean I, oh, I would, you would steal you know, uncut film dailies, but who knows? Um, and as Chad alluded to, as far as the stage, in 1998, The Hollywood Reporter wrote that Barry Levinson was in talks with Disney to create a musical stage version of the film, but there's nothing, nothing came out of it. There's no follow-up articles. You know, Disney had success with Newsies and The Lion King and uh, Aladdin, I guess, and now Frozen. I don't think Ten Men is the, the movie or the play that Broadway is, is craving, but what do I know? You know, you get Elton John in here or Alan Minken or Dina Menzel. Maybe they could write something and 
and have it catchy and tapping your toe, and you're like, we're a tin man, tin man selling siding. People might think it's like a spinoff of Wicked. Yeah. I wonder. Um, um, speaking of music, the, as I mentioned, the theme song, I mean, good thing it, is, it plays in the opening credits and it, it plays in the movie as well. Uh, as I mentioned, the film was released in 1987, but the single wasn't released until April of eight, 1989, which I'm wondering if just if the filmmakers must have known about the band. They had an album before that that didn't really break big, and so they wondered if they said, oh, I got this song, but it just seems bizarre to me that it would, it would take a whole year because the, the album was released a year after that, and then the single came out six months after that. There was another single, that, She Drives Me Crazy, everyone remembers that i didn't realize it until i looked at the charts but both good thing and she drives me crazy went to number one on the billboard hot 100 charts good thing was i mentioned it was released in in april of 89 it went to number one in july of that year um when it comes to the box office you know it was it like we said it opened on march 6th of 1987 it only opened in nine theaters so, of course, it had, like, huge per-screen averages. The only other movies that opened that weekend were Angel Heart, which I believe is that Robert De Niro. Lisa movie? Bonet. It's the one that got her fired from Cosby Show. Oh, okay. I didn't know. Um, that finished fourth at the box office. And then number one at the box office that opened that weekend was Lethal Weapon, which would go on to kind of dominate the charts. Uh, Outrageous Fortune was actually fifth the weekend that Tin, uh, Tin Men came out. And its second week, it goes wider, and it finishes fourth. With $4 million, it finished behind Lethal Weapon, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and Platoon. Um, it hovers between 4th and 5th for about a month. And then as some, there's some movies that come and go above and below it. Movies like Blind Date, Police Academy 4. Uh, it finally gets pushed down with the release of The Secret of My Success. I did not realize how good that, how well that did at the box office, apparently. Um, Project X, the Matthew Broderick monkey movie. I remember that as a kid. And then Raising Arizona went wide and kind of gathered a bunch of steam. Uh, Tinman ends up with a $25.4 million return. And it was only an $11 million budget. So I guess that's not bad for a couple of months. Yeah, that's over twice the budget, so... Technically, that's a success. Yeah. So that's going to be it for uh, this episode of Out of wait, Touchdown. Wait, 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 Mike, Mike. No, no. That's not it. We got one more movie. Get ready. Grab your backpack. Grab your bug repellent. Get ready to pitch a tent because we're going camping with Ernest. Have you ever had any group leadership experience? I had an ant farm once. How'd you like to be a counselor? It's the one. The only. Ernest P. Worrell. <laughs> It's Ernest Unleashed, Unwow, Unbelievable, in the movie everyone's running to see. No, no, not me. Oh, yeah, you. Ernest Goes to Camp, rated PG. Know what I mean? Starts Friday, May 22nd at a theater near you. Check newspapers. Yeah, this is a movie. I, um, I don't know. I think I've talked about how one of the reasons I was excited to watch these these movies for Touchstone is because my wife is was born in the mid-80s, and I remember... All of the different uh, fads and phenomenon. And I remember the Ernest commercials. My father loved them. And I thought they were all really clever. And so when it, we heard he was making a movie, I was somewhat excited. I'm not going to lie. And I, don't, I didn't see it in the theater. I was still, I would have only been like 11. And so I remember seeing it on VHS and being really, really excited for it. And so I was like, oh, let me watch it again as an adult. I'm sure it's going to hold up. I, yeah, I wish I could say that it did, personally. See, this is where we disagree, because while not Shakespeare, shall we say, I found this to be quite an entertaining movie, and 
just going in with the expectation of the fact that it's a movie based around a commercial pitchman who is kind of a local yokel. You know, this is like if The Simpsons made Cletus the Slackjaw Yokel movie, that's why we go with Ernest. And I was pleasantly surprised at how much I actually enjoyed the movie 30 years on. Really? Now, you did see it back in the day as well. Not in the theater, but on video, yes. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was, for lack of a better word, I'll just say it was a phenomenon. I mean, Jim Varney, who just embodied this character and did a really good... Like, I'll give him credit. I know it's easy to be like, oh, he was kind of this this idiot. And like, no, no, it takes skill to do that. I mean, we, as, we, as I found out later, you know, he's classically trained. He'd done Shakespeare. Like, you have to inhabit that character. And I, I, I'll never forget, I went to a screening years ago, and it was a screening of RoboCop, and Peter Weller did a Q&A, and he was talking about how he had studied mime, and he had to learn to be RoboCop, and he was talking about owning the space. And he specifically mentioned, like, Archie Bunker. And he's like, oh, he was sitting in a Barca lounger, but no, he owned that space. He became that character. It was easy, you know, it wasn't just some guy yelling. Like, you really had to put in the work and the effort. And so Jim Varney was working with a man named John Cherry, and they were just, they were, it was an advertising agency in Nashville. The, uh, John Cherry would do these commercials out of his house. They would, these companies from all over the country would call and they would write the, the, the quick commercial, and Ernest would just, would do, you know, he was doing, I think they said like, was it 500 commercials a month or something like that? Like they were just cranking these out and they did it. They made it a point to not go into huge markets. They would just go in these smaller markets so that people thought that Ernest was making commercials just for them, which I, would that even happen today? Because every, if you make a funny commercial, now it's going to go viral, right? Yeah. I don't remember the Ernest commercials, but I, I remember them after the fact, like hearing about them, but we didn't get local commercials. And I think it is kind of a phenomenon and watching an interview with, I can't remember if it was with Jim Varney or with or with John Cherry about how they they didn't want to do national commercials. They wanted to keep it small and keep it local so that one, I think they had more control over it, and two, like you said, keep it uh, special to the people that are actually seeing the commercials. Well, it's interesting you point that point that out because the next step, you know, he's he's growing so big. Well, now you got to go national with a film. So Disney. Signs him to, uh, I guess, the two of them together. M Shell Productions, I believe, is what is what John Cherry's company was called. They get a four picture deal with Disney and Touchstone. And as and as I found out, I was really amazed by it. That the reason that Disney became aware of Ernest in the first place was that Ernest and Mickey Mouse were in the pace car of the 1986 Indy 500, and as it was going around the track. Disney executives were surprised that more of the people were yelling, hey, Vern, and were responding to Ernest more than Mickey himself. I'm not necessarily surprised because if you want to go with the stereotypical race audience persona, I think they play into the Ernest uh, audience per well. But but I didn't I mean, I didn't realize how big the phenomenon of Ernest was. So to to eclipse, you know, the, the. biggest mascot I guess, on the planet so yeah and as we i was doing some of the research and you go on youtube and there's all these interviews with him on the, the today show and cbs news and good morning america and this was years before the movie yeah. so i mean like people would have known about him at, at that point maybe they would have realized that he wasn't just doing commercials for their region only um but yeah as we mentioned it's the first movie as far as this four picture deal i had heard from i listened i was listening to a podcast and they mentioned how that Disney, because I, I noticed it doesn't say Touchstone Pictures Presents anywhere in the credits. And so according to this podcast, they were saying that Disney fronted, the, they, they told them, 
we'll give you four million dollars to make this movie, but you got to pay it yourself, and we'll give you up to four million. So the budget was only three and a half, so that they could keep it within the amount that Disney was offering to pay them back when once the movie was done. And I unfortunately, I really feel like it shows. I mean, it's very low production values. I, I mean, the there's the, talk about no name cast really, and I think it really shows. the The acting is not great, but surprisingly. Filmed on location in Tennessee. Now, again, maybe that was just because that's where John Cherry was at and that was easier for them, you know. But it almost feels like when it comes to some of the acting, did they just put an ad in the paper? Did they go to the local community theaters and just, okay, we need someone this old. We need someone, uh, a woman do, that can be this, Native American, go and, you know, have to find it, I guess. Yeah, well, I did see that in the end credits, they do give special thanks to the American uh, Red Cross, which has no ability, no factor on this but they also give uh special thanks to several different boy scout troops and they said though they came to help uh wrangle turtles for the final so maybe yeah that's uh your <laughs> camp uh kids are just local you know local boy scouts that got to be in the movie now now when you watch this movie again i was totally surprised that opening scene does, I was like, am I, are we watching the same movie? There's this scene with this, it's sort of like a tr- tribal ritual with Native Americans and there's a guy getting a tomahawk thrown at him or something. And you're like, okay, wait, wh- how is this supposed to tie in? Unless it's, it's almost like a, it's a whole, beginning of a horror movie, like there's some sort of Indian burial ground or whatnot. I mean, it comes back into play later in the film, but yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a shock to... You know, I, I think I mentioned it on the last episode about going to see Rocky Four and having the movie switch to be Spies Like Us and the opening with a nuclear warhead was kind of shocking. Same way with Ernest. If you just put this on and or uh, if, if you would have told me, hey, come over, we're going to watch Ernest. And then I start watching this and I'm like, wait a minute, what are, what are we watching again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it just... I was really surprised by that. But then I was not surprised because the very first scene you see with Ernest, he's breaking the fourth wall, just like his commercials. And he, you're like, who is he talking to? Like, it, it seems with the commercials, he's he's talking to Vern. And so with this one, you're you're just kind of like, oh, he's he's talking to the audience. Is that going to be a thing? Or is it just here I'm showing you that we're not – this is how you know me from these TV commercials. But now we're going to go into this other world. But even – I think the first scene after that when he's in the toilet, like he's looking at the camera and kind of mugging, right? Yeah. He is the prototypical – I think I used that word correctly – the prototypical Deadpool. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Now get that image out of your head. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ernest as Deadpool. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they probably have a the same. You know, because I know it's easy to it's easy to just kind of dump on him, but I don't know if it's because of the the accent. But the more I thought about it, and the more when you watch the movie, is, is he supposed to be dumb? But he's not. Like he's he's he's. It, there's sort of a there's a charm to it. I, for lack of a better word, I'll just say he's an he's an idiot savant. Like he's supposed to be sort of simple-minded, but at the same time, he's very well-spoken, and, you know, he just gets into dumb situations and can't help himself. Yeah, the the uh, character description that I saw in interviews with Jim uh, Barney and uh, John Cherry is that he is supposed to be that person that everybody knows or is related to that knows everything but actually doesn't know anything. And, I, mm. yes, coming... Who haven't I insulted on this show? So coming from the Midwest, I know a lot of people like this. Who, yeah. But going back to what you were just saying, that second scene in um, when Ernest is like 
plunging the toilet and doing that. I'm like, okay, this is the earnest movie that I was expecting. Yeah. Lowbrow humor, just the cheap. But uh, but I think we kind of moved past that a little bit. Like it, it wasn't scraping the bottom of the barrel, but it was hovering right above. Yeah, and it's it's, it's a very it's a thin premise. I mean, if you're going to make a commercial, a movie about a commercial, it stars a commercial pitchman. I mean, he's, he doesn't he's not playing the commercial pitchman. He's just playing that same character. I, I just thought like I mean, I guess. They were like, okay, like, did, did they have access to the camp or something? I made a movie. The one movie I made in L.A. was a situation where the producers that I work with knew the location, and they had somebody who wanted to write it. So they had him write the script around the location because we knew we could use it already. And so I wonder, did John Cherry already know that? But, yeah, the premise is just, okay, he's the handyman, and he wants to be a counselor. How would you like to be a counselor? Are you kidding? You mean a, a real counselor? A, a counselor like you guys? A counselor? Just like us, Ernest. Oh, Mr. Tipton, uh, that's great, and and I'll do a great job, a great job, and I'll do my regular work, too. Oh, I can't believe it's true, me, a counselor, oh, a real counselor, I can't believe it. Oh, thank you, Mr. Tipton, thank you, thank you, thank you, a real counselor, a really, really, real, real, really, 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 real counselor, thank you, Mr. Tipton, thank you. And as we mentioned, since they filmed on location, it didn't have much of a budget, then they had to cast the film, you know, um... I love John Vernon. He plays that sort of that great typical bad guy, and unfortunately, he he's a one note bad guy. He's more funny than you know. And when you watch some of these movies, especially this one, it's it's. I mean, he. I think he he did. I want to say he did either the black exploitation movies or some of the Roger Corman films. I could be totally off on that, but he's just he's a typical bad guy. And like Lyle Alzado, uh, I mean, I remember him. I remember watching him play football, and then I remember unfortunately. And he, when he passed away, he was one of the first people you heard, heard about that had the died from steroids, right? right? Yeah. But um, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but, I mean, my wife even pointed out the fact that every kid in that camp is white, and then they go to the, get the troublemakers out of the institution, and that's where you got the diversity. That's where you have a black kid and, and Latino kid. And, of course, those kids don't look like they're troublemakers at all. I mean, they're one guy's wearing a tie. Well, that's ironic. But at least, you know, there was no... Uh, gay delinquent. You know, we only went with stereotypical uh, minorities as troublemakers in the eighties film. Yeah, and then of course they got to be mean to them, and you know, it's the everybody gets Ernest gets blamed for the kids not fitting in, but even though it's the kids at the camp that don't want these yeah. these second chance uh, kids there as well. One of the reasons that I that I had this movie so low when we get to our one versus ten is because there's a couple chefs in the movie, and I don't know if that I think that might come from a different comedy bit that that they had done before. But to me, it's like it reminded me a lot of of something out of a Nickelodeon kids show. I, I don't remember all that. I know how much we love Good Burger, but when I was a kid, there was a show called You Can't Do That on Television, and I remember there was was it Barth. Yeah. Is that his name? And he and and that's why these two chefs. There, it's just a series of lame rain schemes. And I feel like whenever they're on screen, it just stops the movie. Like if you're going to get into this movie, at least it's about this guy. This guy want to be a camp counselor. Well, let's see him and camp. You know, otherwise the stuff with the chefs I was just like, all right, can we get back to the to the kids at that point? Yeah, and I don't even think the payoff with a chef at the end of the movie is a good payoff. And I'm going to throw it in now because you've brought up John Vernon and, and the chefs. Again, my big complaint about this movie, it's two rewrites away from being a good movie. Take out the evil landowner, focus more on the camp. Because yeah. like you were just mentioning, the troublemaker kids are coming in and, and Ernest wants to be a camp counselor. So he gets to be in charge of them. And it's like 
they don't respect him, and so they're constantly making fun of him or doing things to him. And then all of a sudden, the uh, nurse of the camp, you know, after he gets in trouble or he gets injured, they bring him poison ivy as a gift. And then she's like, oh, you know, that was wrong. He cares about you. You should, you know, be more sensitive to him or, or whatever. And then they're like, oh, she's right. And that's it. Like, that's the resolution. And then the, yeah. the fighting between the white kids and, and the these delinquents, that's never really addressed or solved. Like, so I think take out the landowner, focus more on the kids. You have a better film. Yeah. And I don't know if I remember this from when I saw it as a kid, but apparently Ernest is a Vietnam veteran. I I I I don't. It's just it's just a quick little throwaway line. I don't know. Maybe he's making it up to impress the kids or whatnot. But you know, I mean, it's we talk about the the kids and the camp and whatnot. And like you were just talking about, have you seen? I have not seen Meatballs. And were, were they trying to kind of distance themselves? Because is Meatballs about a, a developer coming to close the camp down? As far as I can remember, Meatballs is just about kids at camp, and one kid doesn't want to be there, and then Bill Murray trying to make his camp experience better. So, again, Meatballs is a movie that I think a lot of people remember as being a a hilarious comedy, and it's not. Yeah. It's more serious. It's more of a drama. I don't know. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's, this is, this is a little silly. I said, again, I saw this as an 11-year-old. I feel like I was the perfect target audience, you know. Um, What was surprising, though, is much as I did not laugh at this movie, I mean, you said that you did, I thought some of the biggest laughs in the movie for me were jokes that would have totally gone over the head of an adult. There's that scene when he's getting vaccinated and he's trying to be all tough. And then once he gets stuck with the needle, then he starts shouting about how he stole the Lindbergh baby and he's Joseph Mengele. And I'm like, as an 11 year old, I don't even know if I remember those yeah. jokes. You know, I remember the turtle attack. That was something that as a kid, we all loved, yeah. you know, you see that scene again as an adult and you're like, that's the rabbit scene from Holy grail. Right. <laughs> when you, when you're being threatened by a non-threatening animal, you know, I, I, and it also, isn't there, isn't there a part where the, the turtles are talking to each other? Cause I, I was listening. I want to give a shout out. There's this podcast that I discovered today. As a matter of fact, that's called uh, Ernest goes to podcast and they do a really good job of, they go through his, his entire career, uh, the Jim Varney's career at that character. And they pointed out how, like, you know, when he's breaking the fourth wall in the commercials, well, in this movie, when he's breaking the fourth wall, like, is there, is there, is there a chance that he may be talking to his turtle? Is he talking to the animals, which is something somebody might do if they're a little bit lonely. And then when you see the two turtles talking to each other at the one point, you're like, did they talk back? Maybe Ernest isn't crazy. He's talking to the turtles and they're actually talking back to him. I don't know. That seems a that seems a little bit a little bit bizarre to me. Um, for a Disney connection, I couldn't help but notice. But there's a scene when they're when they're told that they have to leave the camp, and he's packing up his things. He's holding like this gigantic Mickey Mouse figurine, and something that my wife Charlene had caught was on the wall is a picture of Doc from the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, and I don't know if you not a Disney connection, but I, this is going to come up a lot in 1987. Coca-Cola is everywhere. There's a scene in Outrageous Fortune, which is totally shoehorned in, where Shelley Long leaves an audition or leaves and, and walks past a Coke machine. Just, just got to get a Coke. I'm sure they were drinking Coke in Tin Men. There's a scene where a Coke machine falls on Ernest, and Ernest goes to camp. There's Coke machines in, in our next movie. This would be after the dismal and embarrassing relaunch of New Coke. So maybe Coke was trying to... You know, repair its image and just wanted you to get out there and drink more Coke subliminally. Um, now, I believe it's in 
Ernest go, or in goes to camp that you hear the goofy scream? Yeah, I noticed that as well because and, now that we have Disney Plus, I showed that to my wife the when he goes skiing, the yahoo and I spotted it as well during what I think I think it was during that action scene at the end maybe or was maybe. it during a particular I can't spot? remember where and it's also in another movie uh, that I was recently watching that I can't recall because I watch so many movies now with Disney Plus that you know for only 7.99 a month you should uh, really sign up. <laughs> This podcast is not sponsored by <laughs> Disney Plus, even though we're talking about movies that will appear on that service eventually. Um, the touch don't touch, as I as I mentioned, there's there's literally none. Like I, I we were we were when my wife and I watched this together, we were asking ourselves like, why wasn't this just a straight Disney release? And the only thing I could think of is you know maybe that action scene at the end. I mean, there's a scene where John Vernon shows up with a gun and he's shooting Ernest, but Ernest is brave like that Indian in the beginning of the movie, and he avoids it. That's the only thing I could think of that would distance itself from being just a traditional traditional Disney movie. I don't know. You had mentioned, and we'll get to it when we get to the end of the year box office, that Disney only released one film in 1987. So maybe there was a, um, you know, just Disney had taken the year off. All their uh, production staff had taken a year off on vacation and Mm -hmm. regrouping. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, It's very bizarre to me. Um, In closing, God, you know, I hate to be mean, but on a scale of one to 10, I mean, the best I can do with this movie is a two. I really feel like it's a series of pratfalls that's better left in commercial form. And I say that like because I, I enjoyed the commercials. They're really funny because you just give me a quick little 30-second burst and he's mugging at the camera. And it makes sense because he's addressing somebody in the fourth wall. But when he does it in, a, in the movie, I don't necessarily – it doesn't really go well with me. And I, not to be too harsh, but I just don't feel like there's a whole lot to this movie if you're older than you know 13 years old, for example. Chad, what did you think? This is where I don't like giving numbers to to movies because I'm probably contradicting myself at some point with the films because this movie I would probably give between a three and a four because it's not – I don't think it's as bad as as you do, but it's also not good. It's – you know, it is – I think it is aimed squarely at a preteen or maybe even younger these days because mm-hmm. preteens – or, or into you know stuff that we weren't as at that age, um, but this is very you know just aiming for the cheap laugh and yeah. the cheap film. Uh, one thought that I had though when watching this film uh, and, and getting ready preparing notes for it is how about this as a crossover? We we'll always talk about could they remake this movie or how would you? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Jim Varney has since passed. Yeah, it's very sad. Um, but could you see an Ernest and Polly Shore army movie? Because Ernest goes to in the army, yeah. Polly Shore's in the army now. I want mm. that crossover movie to happen. Now, somebody with great editing skills, please splice those two movies together. Well, in a time machine, because if it was ma- it had to be made twenty five <laughs> years ago to make it really viable, and I don't know if it would work now. But um, he did have a legacy. I mean, he's he's going to go on to make like we say three more touchdown movies. We'll we'll I think it's over the he makes four touchdown movies in the span of like four years. So we're going to be getting into getting into them on this show. Um, the following year, after the after Ernest goes to camp, he does a TV show on CBS that ran for thir- only thirteen episodes on Saturday mornings. It was called. Hey Vern, it's mm-hmm. Ernest. Which, looking at Saturday morning uh, charts or cartoons, it's amazing how few episodes they actually produce. Uh, I have no numbers off the top of my head, but uh, but I've known recently, like uh, these, these Twitter um, 
these Twitter accounts that we follow that are like histories of the 80s or whatever. They'll be like, you know, on this day, Spider-Man premiered, ran two seasons and 18 episodes. And it's like, really? I remember watching the show for like three years, it seems like. Yeah. 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 And then um, the tie-in back to Disney in 1989 when Splash Mountain opened at Disneyland, Ernest did a whole half-hour special. I don't know if it ran on ABC or the Disney Channel or whatnot, but it's just called Ernest Goes to Splash Mountain. I watched that. It's on YouTube. And I got to say, that was, I thought that was funnier than Ernest Goes to Camp was. I mean, I just it, because it seemed like he was, it was all self-contained, and it allowed him to do some of his those sort of commercial-esque gags in between the bits where he's actually in Splash Mountain. Um, but hey, maybe I'm wrong, because if you look at the box office, it opened on Memorial Day weekend in 1987, and it opened second place. It made $6 million, which is twice its budget on that first week. It was a distant second to Beverly Hills Cop 2, which made $33 million and opened on the Wednesday of that week. It was May 22nd was when uh, Ernest Goes to Camp opened. The only other film that opened that weekend was The Chipmunk Adventure. I, I did not re- I mean, I remember there being a Care Bears movie, but I don't necessarily remember the Chipmunk movie. Um, it hangs in second for uh, a couple of weeks, and then it drops to fourth behind The Untouchables and Harry and the Hendersons. And I think it was the third week of its release. Um, but, of course, it's the summer, so then it just quickly gets buried behind a lot of larger films from that summer of 87. The uh, Predator, The Witches of Eastwick, The Believers, Roxanne. Um, by the end of June, we get uh, Dragnet, Spaceballs, Full Metal Jacket. And so, Ernest, as nice of a story as it was, it quietly leaves theaters. It ends up with $23.5 million in only five weeks of its release, again, on a $3 million budget. So, you know, we can joke all we want about the film's quality, but Touchstone delivered yet another hit. A family of badgers, just as I promised you, actual nature. El Badgerus Maximus Ferocius with Young. The young look just like the regular badgers, only smaller. Now, here's a lesson to be learned. Although they look cute and cuddly, don't ever, ever do this to a family of badgers. I jokingly look at, like, awards consideration, and I was thinking, oh, okay, there's not going to be anything to look at with this. Oh, no, there is, because, unfortunately, Jim Varney was nominated as the worst new star at the 1988 Golden Raspberry Awards, the Razzies, as we call them. Um, I, I had to look and see who else he was nominated against. I never heard of some of the people. One of them was the Barbarian Brothers. If you remember those two... From DC Cab, and they had their own movie? Yeah, that, I think it was called The Barbarians, right? That was the movie. But the the winner, if you want to use the term winner, of the worst new star that year was an actor named David Mendenhall, who played Michael Hawk, the son of Sylvester Stallone's Lincoln Hawk, in the movie wow. Over the Top. I, I never realized that his name was Mike. <laughs> I actually, I remember seeing, I watched Over the Top when I worked at him. Jimmy had a screening of it. That movie is silly to no end. So I could see, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's fair to give a, you know, a child actor the worst. I mean, I guess he's a new star, yeah. but, uh, yeah, that's, that's about all we've got. Um, one of the things we like to talk about with, with this show, because I'm a big fan of both James Bond and Alfred Hitchcock, is I always like to see if we can, if I can tie in a connection with the movies that are discussed on each episode. There is a couple of Alfred Hitchcock connections. I don't know if you remember, Chad, but there's a scene in Tin Men where they go by a movie theater, and the movie that's playing is The Birds, which came out in 1963, so there's no anachronism there. And as I mentioned, uh, Barry Levinson had co-wrote and has a cameo 
in the Mel Brooks Hitchcock spoof, High Anxiety. It's actually a pretty clever movie. The James Bond connection. Chad always challenges me with this. I found one, and it's a, it's very distant, but I'm going to take it. In uh, 1997, there was a TV special, an hour-long TV special. that was called The Secrets of 007, The James Bond Files. It was honoring the 35th anniversary of the franchise, and it also tied into the release that year of the movie Tomorrow Never Dies. So it had a lot of clips from that. The narrator of that James Bond special, Peter Coyote. Wow, this is uh, this is getting you know more in depth than Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I I applaud you, sir. And uh, I'm I, trying to make I, it fun. I, I'm trying to see if I can, yeah. rather than saying, "Well, he appeared in this movie," who appeared in this movie, who was in James Bond. I'm like, okay, the last one with with uh, Paul Newman and Daniel Craig being in a movie together. That was my stretch. But I was like, ah, pulled that one, Peter <laughs> Coyote. Um, we'll go into more specifics when we get to the end of the year. But I will tease you and say that. Outrageous Fortune goes on to finish in the top 20 for the year end, and Tin Men and Ernest Goes to Camp both finish in the top 50. So there we go. That's the, we're looking at the first half of 1987. Um, as we'd like to think about with these Touchstone movies, do they fit into that Disney ideal? Like, Do you think that these are movies that they didn't, obviously didn't – well, Outrageous Fortune, they would not have wanted to make under their banner, but they also – they're taking chances on young filmmakers, or at least young writers and established filmmakers. They're turning Bette Midler into a household name. Richard Dreyfus, I believe Richard Dreyfus stars in more touched on movies than anybody. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of keeping him relevant, brought him back from from his uh, cocaine-inspired uh, uh, delusions. Yeah. <laughs> and gave us Ernest, who gave us all cocaine-inspired delusions. Exactly. Know what I mean? Yes. But um, so if we look at the Disney films of that era, as Chad mentioned, they only had one other film release, original Disney production in 1987, and it comes out on June the 5th. It's called Benji the Hunted. Or if you're like me and can't read well, it's called Benji the Haunted, and it's a great film. Now, see, that might have been pretty good. Um, it, it only it's only in theaters for a month. It grosses twenty two million dollars, um, which is I guess I mean the budget couldn't have been that much, so we did okay. And as we've often seen with Disney, they were really big fans of the re releases. Uh, for the time period that we've discussed here, the first six months of nineteen eighty seven, Disney has one re release. They do uh, the Aristocats from nineteen seventy. It's it's released on April the tenth, and I was surprised in in the first three weeks that it was out, it finished in the top five, and it winds up grossing seventeen point four million dollars in one month of release. It's just free. Money. Money almost, right? Pretty much. And that Disney vault is just, you know, filled with collection after collection. Yeah. And I'm not going to make an off-color Walt's head joke here. So. No, of co- no, of co- <laughs> not, not on this show. Yes, of course. So that's it for this one. Uh, for the next episode, I'll just we, we mentioned how 1987 is starting to bring a lot of the, the big films that we liked from our childhood. Uh, we have the feature directorial debut of Chris Columbus, and we also get the return of Richard Dreyfus. Chad, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Going back to Ernest real quick, I... Wish there were better clips of Jim Varney doing Shakespeare because the clips that I did see, the audio was not that good. But I can just imagine him on stage being like, to be or not to be, that is the question. Know what I mean? A man can die but once, Vern. Know what I mean? Beware the Ides of March. Know what I mean? I can run this bit into the ground 
more and more. You oh, know no. what I mean? I will, I will stop you right there because we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about Ernest, unfortunately, as it goes. Uh, for my partner, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. My name is Mike DeKalb. I keep forgetting to, to point out, uh, yes, I'm at, at Mike DeKalb, but I, we also have a Twitter feed for Out of Touchstone. I find myself using that Twitter account more often. That's simply at Out of Touchstone. And as I mentioned, we had a little bit of listener feedback on Twitter, but if anybody wants to reach out via email, out of touchstone at gmail.com as well. So again, for Chad, I'm Mike. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.